Father, our prayer this morning is that that is our cry of our hearts, that we claim no righteousness of our own. We claim no salvation by our own doings. But Father, we cling to the promise of your word that it is at the cross we stand forgiven. And as we read your word this morning, and as we try to unpack it, Lord, it's so easy to uh, dismiss these things and to not think deeply about them, to not uh, meditate upon them, to not uh, seek uh, that our hearts are understanding what is going on. And so, Lord, we pray that your Spirit would move in such a way in our minds and hearts this morning as, as that we, as we think about the power of the cross, as we think about what it means that Christ bore our sins, what it means that He died in our place, what it means that Your wrath was satisfied. Father, I pray that our hearts would be moved to responding to these truths in a way that is honoring to You. In all this, Father, we desire to exalt Christ, exalt Him for the work that He accomplished. And Father, the the words of mockery that were written on the cross that here is the King of the Jews. It was through the cross that He established the fact that He is indeed not only the King of the Jews, but the King of your creation. That He is your King. And therefore, He is to be our King. So Lord, we pray that as we read these passages, as we we unpack them, that Your Spirit move in our hearts this morning. Free our minds from distraction. Give us a sense of uh, the weightiness of what Mark is writing. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. Invite you to open up your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark. The Gospel of Mark, the second book of the New Testament. We will be in Mark chapter 15, verses 16 through the end of the chapter. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, uh, there should be a red pew Bible in front of you. If you turn to uh, around page 852 to 853, uh, you should find yourself in the same spot that we're at this morning. So Mark chapter 15. Uh, We are coming to the end of the Gospel of Mark, and next week we will actually conclude uh, the the Gospel of Mark, uh, and it will uh, bring to a close a a time that we have gone through the Gospel of Mark, and we have uh, seen glorious things that Mark has written about concerning Jesus and and the whole purpose of Mark. Uh, If we can remember back uh, almost a year ago when we started in chapter 1, verse 1, was with those beginning words that Mark was desiring to write an account regarding the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and to where He was desiring to show people that this is who Jesus is, that He is the Son of God, and that that demands some type of response from us. And this morning we're going to see the climax of all these things, to where Christ uh, is taken to the cross. And what's amazing about this event as we read about it is that without question, this is the most significant event and the resurrection that will follow in, in two or three days, in three days. This is the most significant event in the history of the world. 
And yet as we read this account, it's clear that no one understands what's going on. They don't understand the significance of what's happened. For us, if we have something major going on in our lives, whether it be a marriage for one of our children or our own marriage, uh, you know, a wedding anniversary, a major sporting event of some, time, of some type, generally we have the ability to perceive that, hey, this is a significant event. You know, the marriage of my daughter, this is a significant event. Or this national championship game, uh, this is a significant event. And yet those events are meaningless and nothing in comparison to what takes place in Mark chapter 15. And yet as significant as this event is, up until the Roman soldier at the end of Jesus' death, no one really gets what's going on. They don't understand the implications of what's happening. And in fact, most people are mocking this event. So in verse 16 and through the end of the chapter, we're going to see several different things. And we're really going to spend most of our time in verses 33 through 39. But before we get there, a couple of things just to make sure that we understand what has taken place before we get to verse 33. In verses 16 through 20, we see that this is immediately after Pilate has handed over Jesus to the soldiers. And here we have these Roman soldiers mocking who Jesus is. In verse 17, they clothed Him in this purple cloth representing royalty. And they took this crown and they, and they twisted it together, this crown of thorns, and they put it on Him. And they began to salute Him. And what do they say? They're saying, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking His head with a reed and spitting on Him and kneeling down in homage to Him. And when they had mocked Him, they stripped Him of the purple cloak and put His own clothes on Him. And they led Him to crucify Him. So here you have this, this detailed account that Mark is seeking to, to give us an account of the pain and the torture and the agony that Jesus is going through. That this is very different from uh, an execution that we would have in our own penitentiaries today. To where great care is taken of that individual who, who, is, who is scheduled to die. Who he's asked uh, what he wants for his last meal, any last words. And then he is, the goal is to, to execute that person in a, quick, uh, as, in a quickly as way possible. To, to allow for as little pain as possible. But we see here in this account, the desire of the Roman soldiers was not to prevent Jesus from experiencing as little pain as possible. In fact, it seems as though they're trying to push Him to the absolute brink of death. They're trying to, to inflict as much torture upon Him as possible without actually killing Him. And in the process, they're mocking Him. So it's clear that they have understood the message of who Jesus is saying that He is because they're making fun of Him because He claims to be the King of the Jews. And the irony in all of this is that they are actually proclaiming truth in their mockery. And by placing thorns on him, a crown on him, in mockery they are proclaiming who Jesus really is. So then, as he is led out to be crucified in verses 21 through 32, we see the continuing of mocking him. 
The, the, the soldiers have mocked him. In verse 24, they're, they're dividing their garments among them. They're casting lots. All these things fulfilling what Psalm 22 said would happen that we read this morning to begin our service. And then in the third hour, they crucified him. In verse 26, the inscription above, Jesus on the cross is saying that he's the king of Jews. He's been numbered with the transgressors, as Isaiah prophesies. He has robbers on either side of him, on his right and his left. And then those who have passed by are, are wagging their heads. Again, they're mocking him. And they're saying, ah, you know, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it three day, in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So this appears to be just the average people, people like you and me, that we're walking by the cross. And instead of understanding the significance that in fact the Son of God has been crucified, that an un, uh, or an innocent man has been unjustly condemned to death. They're mocking Him. They're saying, oh, you who said you were going to destroy the temple and build it back in three days. Well, let's see how powerful you really are. Why don't you save yourself now? So they are not understanding the implications of what's happening. It says in verse 31 that so also the chief priests and the scribes mocked him to one another saying, He saved others, can he not save himself? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. When you read that verse you think, well why didn't Jesus do that? Surely he could have done that. Because they said if he did it they would see and believe. We know that even had He come down from the cross at that point, they would not have seen and believed. Or He was raised from the dead three days later, and they didn't believe. He had done miraculous events before this, and they didn't believe. They didn't want to believe. In all these things, as we have looked at Mark chapter 14, and here at the beginnings of 15, we see this continual rejection of Jesus. That His disciples have abandoned Him. Judas betrayed Him. And here the crowds, the Roman government, the scribes, the high priests are mocking Him. That everyone has, has turned their back on Jesus. And that sets up what we begin in verse 33. This fact that, that in your mind you think, well, every, every human has left Jesus. Every person has left Jesus. Everyone has turned their back on Jesus. But Jesus is still God. He's still got God, right? If even, if even everyone forsakes Him, surely God will not forsake Him. God will sustain Him. And then when we get in verse 33, it says, When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Now the sixth hour is about noon, so the ninth hour would be about three o'clock in the afternoon. In verse 34, it said, At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now think about that for a moment. That Jesus, the Son of God, whom we are claiming is fully God, 
as the New Testament clearly teaches, that the fullness of God was pleased to dwell in Jesus. That the disciples have abandoned Him. Judas has betrayed Him. The people have screamed for His crucifixion. He's being mocked by the Roman soldiers. The crowds are mocking Him. The scribes and Pharisees, religious leaders are mocking Him. How do you think, can it get any worse? I mean, here He is hanging on a cross. An innocent man, unjustly condemned, hanging on a cross. And you think, can it get any worse? Can things go any worse for Jesus? And the answer is yes, they can. That when you think about Jesus' prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane that we talked about a few weeks ago, and when He was saying that, that God, anything is possible for you, and if it's possible, can you take this cup from me? I have to think that part of, of his, his being realistic about the pain that was coming, because He knew what was going to happen in verse 34. That He knew that at some point on the cross, that He was going to have to say the beginnings of Psalm 22, when He says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And you have to ask, why is this happening? I mean, hasn't this man suffered enough? I mean, he was beaten. He's had thorns put upon him. He's been pushed to the brink of death before he was even nailed to the cross. And now, God, you have turned your back on your son. I mean, this is the path that you have sent for him, right? Why have you forsaken your son in his greatest hour of need? We are given a picture by Mark into the the agony of Christ. But this isn't just some, oh yeah, Jesus died on the cross. But this is real. This really happened. And Mark is seeking to try to show us that this isn't just something that we think about in our minds, but that we, we force our hearts to ask the question, why is the Son of God on the cross asking the question, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why has the Father forsaken the Son? Why has the Father turned and abandoned the Son at this point? And the answer is in the beauty of the Gospel. That He who had no sin became sin for us. He who was righteous bears the unrighteousness of the world. And when we ask the question of why, what's going on here, do we see the reality of God's hatred for sin? That God couldn't just say, okay, well, you know, everybody read, but I love you. Your slate's clean. You're forgiven. Nobody has to get hurt. Nobody has to die. Nobody has to be beaten. Nobody has to be nailed to a cross. But we see here that Christ is bearing the sins of God's people. That upon Him are the sins of the world. My sin. Your sin. 
So why is it that God has abandoned Jesus at this moment? The Father turning His back in some sense against Christ? And the answer is because of the sinful thoughts and words that you spoke this morning. Because of the sinful actions that you have already committed today. Because of the sinful actions that you committed yesterday. Because of the pride in my heart and your heart. Because of the greed in your heart and in my heart. Because of the lust in your heart and my heart. That these things were taken by Christ at this moment. And to where He is bearing the sins of the world. This is so beautifully described in, throughout the New Testament. Where Paul writes in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 5.21, he said, God made Him who had no sin to be sin for us. And in, Paul, in Galatians, Paul writes that God, Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse. One of the verses that we often share when we're talking about the gospel to people is, for the wages of sin is what? For the wages of sin is death. For the wages of sin is death. And the beauty of the gospel is that it's not your death. But it's Jesus' death. So that your death... You know, who, who should have been on the cross? I should have. Joan should have. Carolyn should have. Patty should have. Molly, Kate, and we could go all the way around. When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, what is it talking about? It's talking about this type of death. Not only do you deserve death, you deserve a flogging. You deserve a beating. You deserve a whipping. You deserve, and I deserve, nails to be driven through my hands and through my feet and to hang on a cross. You deserve that. I deserve that. Why? Because the wages of sin, the payment for sin, the just payment for sin, is death. When we think about wages, you know, you go to work, you get paid. Why do you get paid? Because you've earned that money. Those are your wages. That's what's rightly due to you. So when you get your paycheck from your boss, you don't say, you know, thank you for being so generous. You, I mean, thanks, but, you know, I work for that. I earned that. So when Romans talks about the wages of sin being death, it's what you've earned. You've earned a crucifixion. You have justly earned a crucifixion because of your rebellion against God's Word. I have justly earned a crucifixion because of my rebellion against God's Word. One transgression of the law is sufficient to earn me death. And how many of us are willing to even contemplate the thought of how many transgressions we actually have committed?
And so you see that someone has to pay the penalty. Someone has to get the wages for our death. And at this point we see that it is Christ. That God cannot just willy-nilly say, okay, everybody's forgiven, don't worry about that anymore. But that someone has to get the wages. And here in verse 34 we see that when Jesus is saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He is taking the wages. He is taking the payment for my sin and your sin. And He has become a curse because upon Him He bears the sins of the world. You think, why why is this? Why is this? In the cross we see this picture of divine hatred of sin. That Christ must die. But also we see this picture of divine love. That God would allow His Son to come to the point where He's saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why? Well, as Peter says in chapter 3, verse 18, he says that Christ died for the sins of all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to God. To bring us to God. And this is what we see in verse 39. After Jesus says these things in verse 35, some of the beholders think He's calling for Elijah. They misunderstand Him. Verse 36 says that someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. But in verse 37 it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry, and he breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And what is the significance of that? What happened in the temple? The worship of God, right? And they had this one section in the temple which was called the Holy of Holies and only one priest was able to go in there once a year. That no one else had access to that. So if you just walked up and said, hey, I want to go in there, you would not be allowed to go in there. And there was this huge curtain that separated you from what was understood to be the presence and the dwelling place of God. And so when Peter says that Christ died to bring us to God, this is symbolically represented that when Christ dies, when He breathes His last, guess what wage has been paid? The wage of death. That the wrath of God that is poured out against our sin is satisfied. The wall of separation that kept us from God, which is sin and God's punishment against us, that wall is torn. And in fact, it's not torn from the bottom, it's torn from the top. Representing that when Christ died, when Jesus died, when He breathed His last, the wage that was against me and against all of God's people is satisfied. It's taken away. 
So we don't need a curtain anymore. That there is no wall of separation between the Creator and His people. That that wall which was created by a rebellion has been taken down. That Christ has satisfied the wrath of God. And no longer do we need the blood of, of animals to appease God's wrath because the blood of Christ is sufficient for all times. And so when we think about the song, the power of the cross, this is the power of the cross, that God's wrath was satisfied against us. And the curtain was torn from top to bottom. And we as God's people are able to be brought to God, our Creator. We're able to be reconciled to Him. Where He simply hands out the olive branch and says, if you believe what my Son accomplished is sufficient for my wrath to be satisfied, and you're having faith in that, and you're trusting in that, then enter into my presence and seek and find what your heart longs for. But do we think about that? Do we just think, oh well, yeah, Jesus died on the cross without thinking about why He died on the cross and what His death accomplished on our behalf and what our proper response to that is. A lot of times we think that, well, we see this and boy, I need to pay Jesus back. I need to do something for Jesus because look what He did for me. He died on the cross for me. He was crucified for me. So I need to do something to pay Him back. That's the wrong answer. For several reasons. One, can you really pay this back? It doesn't matter what you do. Can you ever pay back? It would be like if Bill Gates loaned me $10 billion. I'm never going to pay that back. I could work every day for the rest of my life. If I'm going to send him $100 a month, it's almost insulting. And so when we read this and our first response is, let me do something to pay Jesus back for this. Then you have insulted what Christ accomplished on the cross. That this is the work of Christ, not the work of me and not the work of you. But when He, through His death, secured the redemption of God's people, He secured it. And He offers it as a gift of saying that all who have faith and think about what we're having faith in. We talk about having faith a lot. But what are we having faith in? Specifically, I'm not having faith that Jesus is going to get me home safely this afternoon. I'm not having faith that I'm not going to have cancer today. I'm not having faith that my children are going to wake up in the morning and everything's going to be okay. That's not what the biblical call to faith is. The biblical call to faith is trusting in what happened in this passage. That when Christ said, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That my sin had been placed upon Christ. And that when He died, His death is sufficient to take the place of my death. And therefore, although I may physically die, I will live for eternity in the presence of my King. 
So when I say we're having faith, we're having faith in that. That Christ's death was sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God against you. And that His righteous life is sufficient to serve as your righteous life. And God simply offers out, this is the announcement of the gospel. This is the announcement of the good news. This is the good news. That you can escape death and judgment and you can become righteous. And it happens through the life and death of Jesus Christ. So when we have faith, we're having faith in that truth. So is that what you have faith in? Does your heart understand the power of the cross? That this is what happened here. And amazingly and beautifully, in verse 39, as Mark ends this section, he says that, and when the centurion who stood facing him, and just remember, this is a centurion that was obviously involved in beating him, mocking him, putting this crown upon his head. This is a Roman guy. He hasn't been with Jesus. He hasn't been one of His disciples. He's probably never read one single verse out of the Old Testament. Probably never been in a synagogue. Probably hates Jews. He's not a Jewish guy. This is a Roman soldier. And he sees these things. And he said facing him. And after he had seen these things, the way Jesus had died... The way he breathed his last, that this Roman guard, this Roman soldier simply says, Truly, this man was the Son of God. So in Mark chapter 1, verse 1, Mark begins by saying, This is the gospel of Jesus, the Son of God. And up until this point, the Jewish people don't get it. The scribes and the Pharisees don't get it. The high priests don't get it. The disciples have abandoned Him. And you have this Roman guard. Not a Jew. Not the people of God. The most unsuspecting guy is the first to genuinely with his heart proclaim, truly, this is the Son of God. So it's one thing with your mind to say, oh, this is the Son of God. The other Roman guards were saying that. The people were saying that. Religious leaders were saying that, but saying it in a mocking way. And if you say it in a way that you're just affirming it with no contemplation about what type of response that demands of your heart, then in some ways you are just like those who are mocking Jesus. So are we having faith in the power of the cross this morning? When you think about your call to faith, and when you say, well, I have faith in Jesus, is this what you think about? If not, you're having faith in a different gospel than what Mark is writing about. You're having faith in a different gospel than what Paul wrote about. The faith that we are called to have is one where we are trusting in the promise of God that we will become His people 
through the death and resurrection of His Son, Jesus Christ. And what He accomplished through His life, death, and resurrection. So my prayer is that we don't dismiss the story of the cross as if something, well, I've heard that since I was a little kid at church. But this is the foundation, the cornerstone of all that we do, say, believe. So my prayer is that the Spirit would work in our heart in such a way to where we contemplate the realities of what took place on the cross. That He who was not a curse became a curse. He who was righteous died for the unrighteous. So that we might be brought to God. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.